0: 2022. Pandemic or endemic? Mask or no mask? Who do I even ask? Who or what can I trust? Get a booster if I must? Say one thing, people are furious. Say the other to just as much anger. Isn't that curious? Inflation of 7.9 percent, but my spending habits cannot take the hint. (laughs) I won't even say what it costs to last fill my tank. Darling, don't open any emails from the bank. (laughs) My financial advisor says, don't worry, this is normal. But Russia has now decided to break out the arsenal. As if we don't have enough on our own, we pipe in the world's death and destruction straight to our homes. We compulsively must stay in the know, yet despite our great social network, we feel so alone. The metric moves continually on the measure of success, the only surety being it's not what is my best. Are you worried about anything? Do you feel anxiety like I do, undoubtedly, confess to as well? And maybe it's like the 16th century philosopher de Montaigne who famously said, my life has been full of terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. We we know. And so today I wanna start with a quick disclaimer that we are gonna be discussing Jesus' teachings about anxiety. And before we jump into that, um, we need to acknowledge that there are different kinds of anxiety. Um, There is a kind of anxiety that is actually normal and healthy. When you hear the lion roar, your heart rate should increase and you should respond accordingly. That's normal, healthy anxiety. But then there's unhealthy anxiety to which Jesus will be addressing. There's unhealthy, ongoing, without good reason that needs to be addressed type of anxiety. But then there's also another type of anxiety. There's an unhealthy, ongoing, um, needing professional help type of anxiety. And so I wanna start, before we jump into this, to acknowledge there is a kind, a level of anxiety that needs a professional. And one of God's many graces and gifts to us is professional care. Um, so please do not take today's sermon and think I should just have more faith or anything like that. Um, if you need to see a professional, I would so greatly encourage you to do that. Um, and that, there is no shame in that. So, as we jump into this, um, I, this week, heard a speech given, um, it, this is Johan Hari, who has been quite well-known bestseller book, um, but he also did a TED Talk that kind of brought him into the limelight, but talking about anxiety, he grew up with anxiety, kind of a like crippling anxiety, and at a very young age was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and some other things, and so he was medicated from a very young age, and yet as he went on throughout his life, he realized, like, I have to keep increasing the dosage, and like, I'm still just wrestling with all these things, and so he started to explore and do some research traveling the world talking to different people and cultures and how they address anxiety and his research led to him saying he thinks that there are essentially um, nine different types or causes of depression and anxiety and all of them include disconnection from something and so he points out these things that we are disconnected from typically include meaningful work, other people, meaningful values, maybe childhood trauma, status and respect the natural world, a hopeful and secure future, also known as faith, genes, DNA, and brain changes. And he argues that really only the last two are actually individualistic and frequently involve or require medical care to treat. And so he's saying, as the world just blows up, and the, the World Health Organization actually reported that the COVID-19 pandemic triggered a 25% increase in the prevalence of anxiety and depression worldwide. Um, but we knew that anxiety was markedly on the rise prior to this pandemic. We knew. We could feel it. We experience it. And here's the thing. Jesus' desire is for us to be a non-anxious presence in the world. Like, believer, I want you to hear me on that. Jesus wants for you to be a non-anxious presence in this world, to not be so marked by anxiety. And this means that we're not stoic and unmoved, just kind of aloof and untouched by anything, but actually we are present, but we're confident in that presence and we're secure in who we are and how we are loved and we're able to actually respond and help as needed, that they can go together. When you think about how compelling is a non-anxious presence in today's world, this morning, it's like, thank you God and your providence for just always showing off. But we get here and the the students are doing a fundraiser and one breaker after another starts tripping and next thing you know, the band's rehearsing and it all goes silent. Like, oh, the stage just lost power too, that's just fun. And so we're all frantically trying to figure things out and, and I'm reminded of a conversation I had with one of our other pastors this week. We were talking about just like, you know, good leaders are able to be in the midst of trauma and just chaos and still be calm. To be able to say like, we have to move forward. Some things have to happen. There's gonna be some extra pressure here, but to do that in such a way that doesn't make the world seem like it's collapsing. Like, nah, there's a confidence that we we can do this. And it may look like the whole story changes, but it's okay. And so Jesus actually desires for us to be a non-anxious presence in this world and in this life. So we're in the midst of our series going through Luke, so if you will turn with me in your copy of scripture to Luke chapter 12. And so as we've been going through this this series called Certainty, um, what we're we're doing in in this portion of it is we're looking at some of the teachings of Jesus. And so today we're going to look at the teachings of Jesus regarding anxiety or worry. And so this will pick up in Luke chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 22. Luke chapter 12, verse 22. Jesus is on the tail end of giving a parable that he's quite well known for, and he picks up, this is what Luke records in verse 22. Then he, meaning Jesus, said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. And so there's a command for us here. Straight from Jesus, our Lord, our sovereign, our king, that we should submit to in all things. And he says, don't worry. Okay, that's a... It's quite the command there, Jesus. He says, Don't worry, and we need to look at the context here. So, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he starts with saying, Therefore. And so, what is the therefore, therefore? Not to be a cliche, but you have to ask if he's saying therefore. That's a connecting word. And so, I have to look back on what is the argument that has preceded this? What has happened before this occurrence? And so, we look back and we see that Jesus just addressed a brother who came and was like, Hey, Hey, my brother, he's trying to rip me off. Tell him to divide the inheritance. This is not fair. I want justice. And Jesus turns around, you don't want justice. You're greedy. But he gives them this parable, and he's like, there's this rich guy who's got a lot of crops, and his crops are doing stellar, like bumper crops this year. It's just more than he can manage. And he's like, what do I do with all this wealth? So I can't even fit it in my barns. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down these barns. I'll build even bigger barns, and I'll store it all. And then, you know what? I'm just going to sit back, relax, and enjoy life is good, eat, drink, and be merry, like, it's all good, and Jesus says, and then God says, you fool, your life is demanded of you tonight. Whose is it then? <laughs> he concludes it with like, hey, just be careful about greed. Look, be generous toward God. And so Jesus has just confronted this this deep-seated sin of greed and how we want, we want, we want. And he's given this parable that basically says like, hey, not to be kind of like doom and gloom on you, but you're gonna die. (laughs) At some point you're gonna die and you don't know when you're gonna die. Whose is it gonna be then? You're so confident in that and you want so much more for what? Whose is it when you die? And so this is our context. Like, oh, this is happy. Here we go. All right, don't worry and Death is coming. Here we go. Okay, so verse 23, he says, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing, which begs the question, what then is life? It's gotta be more than just my, my clothing, which is so related to my status because it's really no longer about just like, I need to protect myself. I got a sunburn this week. Like, I made that decision to not wear a shirt because I'm not very smart. And so I got a sunburn, but it wasn't like I didn't have access to clothing. And so most of our clothing decisions are really not about just the the functional ability of clothing to protect us from the elements. It's so much more about status. So much more about, like, what am I communicating about who I am by what I wear? And the body, food for the body. It's like, yeah, you've got to eat. Like, why do you eat everything you eat, though? Is it really just about the nutrients that you need to sustain life? It's like, it's so much more. Your life is more than what you eat and what you wear. So what then is life? And look what he says now, verse 24. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, that's a little thing to Jesus, why worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? Don't strive for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious. For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things and your father knows that you need them. So Jesus gives us some reasons not to worry here. So here's a command, do not worry. Now here's some reasoning. This is why you should not worry. So what is the reason? So first off, life is more than survival and accumulation of earthly wealth. Like, you've got to see that. It goes back to the parable. Like, you you stopped doing anything productive so you could just live off of your wealth, and this shows where your heart is, and then God shows up and is like, you know what, you actually, you died today. Whose is it now? Like, life is about so much more than just what you've accumulated. It's about more than that. We have to see that. It's not just surviving and acquiring. It's more. And then the next reason we don't worry, because we are uniquely loved by God you have to see, as he's saying this, like, hey, look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Don't you know that you're so much more loved than they are? Your father, who's in control of everything, and they trust him for provision, and you're loved even more so. So can't you trust him for provision? So see your worth. See how precious you are in the sight of God. See how valued you are, made in his own image. See that he loves you. You're uniquely loved by God. And so he's actually making some comparisons. And in life, we have unhealthy comparisons and healthy comparisons. Unhealthy comparisons. Last week was spring break. We took our kids to the beach. We're standing there on the beach. And so I've got two little ones. And, and my son, who's a little bit older than my daughter, he's standing there. And next to the dune, he's taking one of those like long weeds, like a giant grass blade. And he's pulled it out of the ground, and he's just like playing with it. He's ultimately wrapped it around his neck, and he's kind of like twining it together. He's just something for him to fiddle with in the moment. And my daughter comes walking up, who thinks she is full-blown frozen princess or something, and she sees him with this thing around her neck, and instead of being like, gross, you got grass on your neck, she's like, where did you get that necklace? <laughs> I was like, what? Well, okay, I'm about to make your day, because I've got a lot of those, like, This is what we call in today's culture FOMO, the fear of missing out. And how much of your anxiety is because we have this tendency to look at our life and then compare it to their life, especially on a screen where it's curated to be just what we want you to think it is. And we're constantly saying, this is what I live in and I know the anxiety, I know the pressure, I know the failure of my everyday, but I see this and it looks so good. And so this anxiety just continues to rise the pressure of like, I don't have that and I want that. I'm missing out if I don't have that. That's an unhealthy comparison. And yet Jesus is saying, there are healthy comparisons. Hey, look at the grass. You see the flowers out there? Go compare your life to that. The bird frolicking, tweeting away. That's just playing. Landing on the power line. You're like, I don't know, that might hurt. I don't know. But like, just, there's no care in the world because they know that they're provided for, they're not worried about everything. And he's like, don't you know? Compare yourself to that, you are so much more loved. You are so much more valued. You were the pinnacle of creation. Like you were made in the image of God himself. You're loved, you're delighted, and he loves you. So see that and know he loves you. And the last one Jesus gives, that's just so, so like in your face. It's like, hey, can you add a single moment to your own lifespan? Oh, you can't do such a simple thing as that? Uh, (laughs) What are you worrying about? What's the point of worrying? He's saying, worrying doesn't actually serve any productive purpose when it's like that. So, here's some good reasons. Verse 31, now he says this. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. You should have a bit of concern and like, there's, there's prudence to this life. There are things that you need to survive. And he's saying, it's, it's not wrong for you to acknowledge that. But the way in which you pursue those things, it says a lot about your heart. And so be careful. And he's saying, this is, this is what has to be priority number one. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek his kingdom. And know that as you seek his kingdom, he's going to provide all these things that you need. So in all of our stress, like so much of our anxiety is like, oh, it's just like, I don't know what to do. And Jesus comes in calmly saying, you seek first the kingdom. Like maybe you have crazy difficult decisions to make right now. Like, I don't know how to respond in this relationship. I don't know how to interact with this person. I don't know how to move forward in this position. Whatever it is, all these decisions all of these uncertainties in life and Jesus calmly comes in and says, don't be anxious, just seek first the kingdom. And in fact, as you do that, I'll provide everything you need. So seek first his kingdom. Prioritize or concern yourself with seeking the kingdom. And we have to connect this to everything that we've talked about. What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? This is shalom, this Hebrew idea of great beauty and peace, that everything is working in its proper order. There's prosperity, there's, there's delight, there's great joy. And so the kingdom represents this. The kingdom is peace, it's God's rule. It's where the kingdom has a king. The king is our Lord, It is God himself, namely Jesus Christ, who is the king of kings. It's where the presence of God is uncontested and acknowledged. This is where the, the coming consummation of the kingdom that Jesus came and said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here and yet it is to come. And so we live in this already-not-yet tension of it is as good as done, and yet we're living out what is to come. But he is coming. Jesus will visibly return to this earth and will fully establish his kingdom. And so it's to live longing for that, and that is why we will continue to pray, come, Holy Spirit, or come, Lord Jesus. We want more of his presence, and we want that in this moment, but we also look forward to the moment that, as Paul said, like Jesus told us that we're gonna do this whole act of remembering the Lord's Supper and participating in that. Until he comes, we proclaim his death until he comes, and that's going to this promise that Jesus gave when he ate the last supper, and it's called the last supper because it was the last supper that he ate with his closest friends, the disciples, and he said, I won't drink this wine again with you until we drink it anew in the kingdom. There's a party coming, and it's going to be amazing. And so we look forward to that in the kingdom, and we orient our lives around the pursuit of this kingdom and also acknowledge that there is great reward and the kingdom, that Jesus was continually talking about being rewarded for our obedience, our faith. And so there's something to that, and yet the reward is not necessarily tied to this life. It's in heaven. You're storing up treasure in heaven, and so all of this is wrapped up in what he says: and seek first his kingdom, seek his kingdom. And so, verse 32. Now he says, "Don't be afraid, little flock." because your father delights to give you the kingdom. So you hear this idea of like seek first his kingdom and all the things that come with that and that sounds so grandiose and like unattainable and then Jesus follows it up and says, don't be afraid little flock because your father delights to give you the kingdom. It's like wait, I have to pursue the kingdom? Like, so I feel this kind of onus of like, it's on me. Like, I've, I've got to do this. And, and then he'll give me what I need. And like, as we start to feel our anxiety rise and something that he's supposed to be taking away our anxiety with, then he comes back and he's like, no, 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 don't miss it. Don't be afraid, little flock. This is an endearing term. Your father delights to give you the kingdom Where does it come from? He gives it to us in grace. Not this meritorious, like, oh, I earned this, I deserve this, but no, he just delights in lavishly giving it to you. He loves to give us his kingdom. This is a beautiful assurance that not only does he like to give us, but we are delightfully his. Have you considered the beauty of that? that you are delightfully gods, that God delights in you, and it's not because you have made yourself delightful, but because he has made you delightful, and he's done that through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ, the one, the true human and true God who has come, the God-man, and he lived a sinless life. Whereas you and I mess up, we don't even keep our own standards that we impose on others. He lived perfection, perfection, full obedience, and then he went to the cross as the sacrifice, like all those animals in the Old Testament would be sacrificed, their blood shed as an atonement for sin of others. Jesus, the once final for all sacrifice, the perfect atonement, the covering for our sin, that his blood would be shed, and he did that willingly, dying on a cross for us, so that we would put our trust in him, say, that is my salvation. Jesus dying on a cross in my place, so that I don't have to face the wrath of God that is justly due on me. He took it on himself. That is such beauty, and that is how he has made us delightful. And so it is true, and you've got to accept that that is true, that God delights in you, and he delights in giving you his kingdom. He's done that himself. This is so beautiful. It is his kingdom. You want some practical application out of like how to diminish anxiety in your life? It starts with being honest about why you have it. Why are you anxious? At the heart of all anxiety, I think, is control. Think about this. You are never anxious about things that you feel like you're in control of. You are anxious about things you feel like you don't have control of. And so the beauty of it being God's kingdom and living for his kingdom is to say, you know what? I don't have control. But I know the one who does. Our sovereign Lord. And so if we can relinquish control, and see, we never even had it. We release also anxiety. So relinquish the quest for control and you actually release the anxiety that comes with it. The psalmist actually said it like this. He said, in Psalm 131, he said, Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child. You have to learn to come to a place where you can say, I'm actually okay. And I can be okay with not being in control because I know the one who is in control. Like a weaned child, the child is screaming and demanding food because it is scared and needs that and feels like it needs to communicate in such a way. But after a while, the child weans itself off, realizing this is pretty constant. Mom's going to provide for me the food that I need, and I can actually start to feel a sense of, I'm okay, and I don't need to freak out. <laughs> My soul can be weaned. My soul can be quieted and calmed, like a weaned child. And verse 33, he says, "Sell your possessions and give to the poor make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. <laughs> so with the assurance that Jesus has given us, he says, now this is what you're gonna live like, okay? You're gonna let go of all that anxiety. You're gonna live for the kingdom of heaven and this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna start selling things. You're just gonna start living this insanely generous lifestyle. You're not gonna hold anything with a tight fist. It's like, nope, open-handed. Not my things. It's really all his anyways. So sometimes we get the steward things that he puts into our hand, but we always hold that with an open hand it 's not really mine, it's his. And so what am I going to live for? Am I going to live for the accumulation of these things that I really cannot grip, no matter how much I tie, I try to, or am I going to live for the treasure that's being stored up in heaven, where no moth can start ripping away at the clothing or the clothing? and that was one of the prominent ways that you would display wealth in this ancient culture, similar to today and so No thief breaks in and just robs you blind. No rust corroding at it. It's preserved, imperished, undefiled in heaven. It says, live for that treasure. Live for that one. And so that means giving away your earthly treasure to invest in heavenly treasure. This is how we should live it's fearlessly investing in the kingdom with these ways in which it is, is ultimately about us. We talk about this with our deacons in their monthly meetings. We, we want you to just spend some time conversing. Like, how, what good can we do to show that the kingdom of heaven has really come? As a church, what good can we do to show that the kingdom of heaven really has come? This is what Jesus is saying here. You live in the reality of your pursuit of the kingdom of heaven, showing it has come, and now this is what it looks like in my life, to live open handedly to live generously, to live for treasure that is not bound to this earth. And we can do that knowing that this is the only true, sure or secure investment, using earthly treasure as a tool for heavenly treasure. Um, In simple terms, God's generosity, the fact that it's all his and yet he gives anything to us. God's generosity begets great generosity. As we see the generosity of God, we grow more generous ourselves. Not fearing, but instead saying, you know, all of this has just been entrusted to me to do something with for the kingdom. What a beautiful opportunity. What a privilege to live delighted in by God and now be delightful in giving things away. To be generous people. Verse 34 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We see that on signs at Hobby Lobby. I don't know how many people buy them because it's a pretty convicting statement. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. And so you think, we, we've said this numerous times over the last three years as a church, like money, we call it a currency. And the root word of currency, it's a current. And so you can watch the current. Where is it moving? Trace it out. Look at your spending habits. It's a current that we can trace all the way back to your heart. And so where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Are you putting your heart in a dangerous place? A place that's gonna be robbed, rusted, Or moths are gonna eat it up, which is so weird and smells awful. All these, maybe that's the mothballs, I don't know. (laughs) So many things, like, don't invest in that. He's saying, this is what we must know. It is okay to own things. It is not okay for things to own you. Because I I always come to, like, the, the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus like, hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's like, you know, run through the commands. It's like, I've done all those since I was a youth. What else? And just like, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. So he walks away sad because he had a lot. And I read that and I think, you know, even in, in our middle class income family, we're still in some of the wealthiest percentage of the world. Like what we live with is so just absorbed. Like it's just insane how wealthy we are collectively and individually, and where we live. And so I think like, man, is Jesus telling me I need to sell everything and give it to the poor? And you may be asking that question, and this is how I continually rephrase that. If Jesus showed up and said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, or make it specific, sell that TV that you love so much. Sell that car, give it to the poor. Whatever it is, that's gonna really hurt because you love it and maybe you're even convinced you need it, could you do that? If you could, enjoy it. And if he calls you to give it away, then do that. If you could not, then there's a problem and maybe Jesus is saying, yes, sell it. Sell it and give it to the poor. It's where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Love, cherish, and treasure God supremely. Love him, see that he is the greatest treasure. He is the treasure hidden in the field that the man comes in, digging, doing some work, whatever, and he finds this, he's like, what? Buried treasure, it's worth everything. He leaves, sells everything he has so he can buy that plot of land because he knows that there's a treasure worth everything there. Jesus is the greatest treasure. You have to cherish God. You must love him more than anything. And now this verse actually is setting a transition for us. It's setting the stage for a transition because our hope, he's saying, is in the coming consummation of the kingdom. It's not in what you have now. Your hope is something that is to come. And now if you think through that transition, watch what he now says. Verse 35, Be ready for service and have your lamps lit. You are to be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, then come and serve them. If he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and finds them alert, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. Jesus launches into a series of parables here. He's telling us these parables, demonstrating the need for readiness. So if we're thinking, I don't live for today's treasure, I live for the treasure of heaven, I live for the coming kingdom, the consummation of the kingdom. I'm living in such a way that's ushering that in, that's proclaiming that, that Jesus is coming back and he will fully establish his kingdom. This cannot be my treasure. My treasure is God himself and he is coming. I'm living for the treasure of heaven that nothing can touch And so now he launches into parable after parable saying, be ready. So you've got these servants. They're supposed to be ready for their master's arrival. And if they're ready, they're consequently blessed. They're like, the table's turned somehow. These servants are ready to like open the door, like we're not asleep, like you didn't catch us off guard, we're not having a party here, whatever. Like, we're ready for you. They open the door, the master comes and he's so pleased with them. He's like, you know what, go sit down. I'm gonna serve you guys dinner. Like, wait, who's the servant here? Like this is weird. It gets flipped somehow. And he talks about this thief coming. Like the homeowner would not leave the house to be broken into if he knew what hour the thief was coming. Like if you knew that somebody's gonna come to your house tonight at 10 p.m. and rob you, what would you do? Like, you know, we're gonna gonna go for a late dinner, make sure we're out of there. (laughs) No, you'd be there and you'd have police officers inside ready and waiting too. You'd be ready for that thief. You would be ready. Verse 40 says, you also be ready. Because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so he takes these parables and he points them to the disciples. He says, you, you beloved, you be ready. You need to be ready. We don't know the timing of Jesus' return. And so he's saying, be ready. Be ready for him to come back. In verse 41, he continues and he says, um, this is Peter now, he says, Lord, Peter asked, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible manager of his, household? his master will put in charge of his household servants to give them their allotted food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and starts to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will and didn't prepare himself or do it will be severely beaten. But the one who did not know and did what deserved punishment will receive a light beating. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. And so Peter asks for clarity here. Who is this for? Is this for us? The general crowd... And Jesus makes it very, like, you, speaking to you, disciples. So the question, how can we ensure that we are doing what we ought? We need to be ready for his return. Like the master coming back, the servants need to be ready and doing what they ought to be doing when the master returns, to be blessed by the master. And he's, he's saying, this is how you are ready. This is how you can be prepared to do what you ought. You have to start seeing this. Selfishness and greed are blinding. You know, it's, it's easy to look into our life and say like, man, I have, a, I have a crazy wild pride problem. Like my arrogance comes out and my anger, like in so many issues, so many surface level sins, like, oh man, like it's easy for me to say like, that's wrong, I shouldn't treat you like that. If I'm violent, if I'm a thief, like if I'm an adulterer, like all these different things we are like, that's clearly wrong. You know you're wrong in that. But how many of us are just like painfully aware You're greedy. You're greedy and you're selfish. How blinding are those sins? That when we're greedy and we're selfish, we're not sitting there consciously thinking, like, man, I'm such a selfish person. (laughs) No. It's it's so consuming, it's so self consuming to be selfish that you don't even realize where we are. And he's saying, here's how you take those blinders off the consideration of death. The rich fool or the consideration of Christ's return. He's coming back and you don't know when. These things, these realities, these truths help us to remove those blinders to see, wow, who am I really? If I live in light of his return, or my death, then I can see today a lot more clearly. So we say, see that. Then in this passage, there's also a really hard warning for leaders. For those of you who lead, myself included, there's a heavy warning here. And essentially he's saying, be real, or be really ready to be shown for who you are. And you'll be assigned with what you want to appear to be the opposite of. So be real. He's ultimately saying, live ready for his arrival. Uh, My first year as a high school teacher some years ago, I remember um, it's one of the first staff meetings I went to, and there's this old gentleman who, it was his last year, he was going to retire, and I I loved that guy, but um, there's just so much kind of like bureaucratic nonsense that they're like throwing at us, and it's just like, whoa, like at what point are we supposed to teach, and like all this extra stuff being added, and so I leave that staff meeting, and I'm just kind of like thinking about everything that was just said, like this is, kind of not what I signed up for. This is weird, and all this stuff. And, and it's like this old man could just read what was going on in that situation He kind of falls in line with me as we're walking back to our classes. He's like, you know, Kevin, here's the thing. It's always gonna be like that. When the door closes in your classroom, it's your world. You do, you do what you know is best for those kids. And you, you'll find time to figure out all the other stuff, but when that door closes, it's your world. Do what you ought to do in it. I remember thinking, like, yeah, that's pretty good to hear someone who's on the backside of this career say, like, you can do it. Like, it was. Just, I took so much from that. Um, but then I had this administrator, and, and I love this administrator. But this administrator was fairly new to the role, and, and this administrator assigned to my portion, like the area that I was in, would just became known for like popping into classrooms, and it was always like a gotcha visit, mm-hmm. like, open the door quickly, and like, what's going on in here, like. Like, we're always in trouble, and and this weird thing. So I I quickly realized, like, in in hearing how this administrator would talk about classroom visits, like, it's just never good when this administrator comes in. And so I developed some routines where, like, me and the kids kind of knew what was going to go on. Like, everyone's going to be really good. Like, whatever's happening. Like, we're shutting it all down. We're shutting it all down. And I, in my arrogance, would start using the highest level of vocabulary I could possibly muster and I would intentionally redirect questions that I knew were over the head of this administrator to this administrator under the guise of, we need your expertise. (laughs) And so I would intentionally make that administrator uncomfortable coming into my room. Next thing you know, my class gets skipped every time. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Because it's like this gotcha thing. And here's the thing. That is not what Jesus is saying here. That's our default. Like, because we are so driven by performance and thinking, somehow I've got to earn my way and all this stuff. Jesus is not saying, you better be afraid because I'm coming back. Don't let me catch you off guard. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, like, find the real treasure. When you know the real treasure, God Himself, when you live for the kingdom of heaven, and you stop being anxious about so many other things, and you live in light of coming death or the return of Christ, then you realize, like, oh, that's actually what matters today, is that I'm loved by God, and <laughs> an overflow of responsive love to him. I'm, I'm gonna live like it matters today. And so it's not a, hey, caught you. Ah, you, knew. Ah, you knew I was coming, but you didn't know when I caught you. No, it's like, it's like my son who like pastors the mass out of me, but I love him. He's like, dad, look at this, dad, dad, dad. Like, can I ask you that? Like, we want our father's attention. We want to show something beautiful to our dad. And that's how we get to live. As his delighted and beloved. It's like, dad, watch this. That you want to be proud of what he comes back and catches you doing. It's not a, it's not a like heavy-handed like, don't let me catch you. It's like you get the privilege of living in such a way that it's like, man, I hope he comes back, and sees me leading this family devotion. I hope he comes back when I'm talking to him. Like, how weird will that be? You're like having a conversation with him, and all of a sudden you open your eyes, and you're like, oh, hey, <laughs> we we're just talking. Like, don't you want to be enjoying him when he comes back? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So seek first his kingdom. Don't be anxious you don't perform for his delight. You perform out of his love and delight for you. It's both ours and his. So bottom line, seeing the end helps us to see the present. I love, as I conclude, um, Dr. Timothy Keller pointed this out. Um, When we see how precious and treasured we are in God's sight, we we give him our life. That's because he gave us his life. And so you think all these things that make us anxious in our greed and our quest to consume and acquire and all this stuff, and he says, you know, earthly treasures call you to die for them. Have you thought about that? We give our life to the pursuit of so many earthly treasures, yet it's only in the pursuit of the kingdom that we actually find real life. And that's because Jesus died in pursuit of earthly treasures, namely us. That he came and he died for us so that we could be brought to life, brought to heaven, where moth and rust and thief have no place. He loves us, he delights in us. So will you delight in him? Seek first his kingdom, don't worry. He loves you and he'll provide for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you that is the amazing love with which you love us, that you would come and die So help us, God, in our unbelief, help us to have faith to see that you really do love this world. Um, You love us so much so that you've given the greatest gift ever at the greatest cost ever, your own life. Help us now to give our lives to you uh, and not a a condemning or guilt-ridden way, but God, in the enjoyment of who you are and what you've done for us, God, help us to be a people who can slow down to connect with each other and to our emotions and to so many different things that you have blessed us with and to stop and actually look at flowers and birds and be reminded that you love us even more. Thank you. And would you bless this church? Make us a non-anxious presence in this world and let that speak loudly of who you are.